We started a little late, so let's jump right in. Ruth chapter 3, last week. Risky and risque is what was happening. If you follow the podcast online, that was the title. I come up with titles for each session afterwards, and that was the one that came up because what Ruth did was indeed risky. She proposed, a foreigner proposed to an Israelite, a widow proposed to a man uh, of high standing, Um, a servant, lower than a servant, she said, proposed to a landowner, Uh, a woman proposed to a man, gasp, right? Just broke all the rules of propriety and chivalry and, um, you know, being a lady-in-waiting and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's very scandalous what she did, and she in no uncertain terms said, you, Boaz, prayed that God would take me under his, or God would bless me, the God under whose wing I've come. You take me under your wing. That's literally what she said. Spread the corner of your garment, the wing of your garment over me. And we saw how it was very cool because it was, a, it was, it could have been on a basic literal level. She was, they were, it was night. It was cool. She had uncovered his, like the lower part of his garment. So he woke up because If you uncover somebody and they get cold in the night, they shiver, they wake up. And then so she said, hey, put some cover on me, basically. So on a literal level, she was saying, cover me up. But you could hear the wink in her eye as she said that, because that is the idiom for marry me, is to cover me, take me under your wing, wrap your garment around me. So it's very artistically, intricately, imaginatively done. And we saw last week, Ruth's actions skirt the line. They're right on the border of being scandalous, but not. Even down to the idiom using of uncover his feet. And and again, I want to stress this. The text does not say uncover his feet. It says uncovered his footing or the place where his feet are. And and you might say, well, what difference does it make? All the difference in the world when feet is a euphemism and footing is not. So she did something that was so close to being scandalous, but just stopped short of going over the edge. And Boaz knew exactly what she was doing. And what we find out again is Ruth takes initiative because what Naomi had told her to do was go uncover his footing and then do whatever he says. And then when Ruth did it, She not only uncovered his footing, but then she went ahead and said, hey, marry me. So once again, just like when she went to go scavenge in his field, and then she asked if she could go and scavenge among the standing grain, among the sheaves, that was going beyond what the law allowed for. So she took a risk. Now again, when she proposes marriage to Boaz, once again, she's taking a risk. You have to get out of your mind that Ruth is a story of this damsel in distress waiting for a man to come along and rescue her. Because at no point in the story does she exhibit those characteristics. She's not just sitting around waiting for for her Boaz to show up. At every point in the story, she and Naomi take initiative. They instigate, they, they get things going, but they don't dominate. And this is another thing about the book of Ruth that's so beautiful is the book of Ruth depicts when a woman is pursuing the grace of God and the chesed of God and the relationship of God and doing it and it involves a man, she doesn't run over his authority. She doesn't demand anything of him. She doesn't belittle or treat him as less. Or What she does is express her desires openly, brazenly, with no equivocation, 
and says, this is what I want. And then she allows him to either respond or reject. And so what we see for the rest of Ruth, Ruth leaves after this chapter. She's out of the story. She doesn't appear until way later at the very end as just a mention. But her active part in this is done. Now she has basically given the ball to Boaz and says, run with it. Actually, he says, hey, give me the ball. I'm going to run with it. Because he's excited that she wants to marry him. He's all into this. And as we're going to see, as we'll see, especially uh, when I come back after a few weeks away, him, him agreeing to marry her comes at a high cost. We have to keep that in mind. It comes at a high cost. Because remember, Ruth was married before. She was married to Machon. Machon's dad was Elimelech. And Elimelech was Boaz's next of kin, so to speak. Probably cousin. Probably not brother, but like a cousin or a second cousin. And so, everything that would pass through, everything that, that lineage-wise that would go uh, be passed on through the family would belong to Elimelech. It's his legacy. It's his name. It's his lineage that is, in threatened, that is threatened with being wiped out because he died. And so usually if the father dies, they have a son to carry on their line. Well, he died and his son died. So Elimelech's line, his lineage, his family name is in danger of being blotted out of Israel's history as a dead end. The only thing that stands between it is a postmenopausal widow, Ruth or Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, who's not even an Israelite, who's a Moabite, who also couldn't have a child for 10 years, Ruth. So that is all that stands between the clan of Elimelech being completely wiped out or the family line being carried on. And so anyone who comes and enters into and marries Ruth is going to be marrying and raising up children that bear the name of Machlan and Elimelech. Not their own children, so to speak, at least in legal terminology. So it's a very, there's a lot of factors of family, patrilineal descent, and inheritance rights, and leveret marriage, and uh, land redemption, and all of these things that are going to come out, especially in the next chapter. But because that's so far away, that's you know, four weeks from now, I want to make sure to mention it now that that's, that is the big overriding concern is that there, there are a lot more at stake than just a love story. This is not a love story. This is a family rescue. This is a lineage preservation story within Israel because the greatest fear that an Israelite could have and one of the curses that you would utter against your enemies is may your name, your family lineage be wiped out from history. That was seen as the worst fate that could happen. This is why bearing children was so important. This is why family inheritance rights were so important. It was why God said, as you remember back from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you couldn't sell land outside the family. If you did sell it outside the family, somebody from your family had to buy it back because the land had to stay within the family and the family had to stay within the tribe. And every 50 years it would reset at the year of Jubilee. So there's a, so much more going on to this than just a romance a fairy tale, a love story, a wedding seminar, a dating seminar, all the nonsense that we read into it because we can't relate to this society, we have to push back from our current setting, dive back into the world of the ancient Near East, put ourselves 
in the place of a destitute immigrant widow who's also barren and realize what she faces and what anyone who would take her in faces. Remember, Moabites weren't even supposed to enter the assembly of Israel. This is how, and so Moabites have been oppressing Israel for years before this. So all of the deck is stacked against Ruth. And yet, the whole book centers around her and, and how God continues to carry forth His plan through this immigrant, Gentile, former pagan, barren woman. That's, that's the key of Ruth. Is God. God is the hero of this story. Boaz is heroic. He is admirable. He is a man of strength. A man of character. A man of virtue. But he's not the hero of the story in the big picture. God, just like the book of Esther, God is the hero of this story. And so we have to keep that in mind. Where we left off is when Ruth uh, proposed and it said... Uh, when she proposes to Boaz, Boaz says, verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This, this chesed, and the NIV says kindness, but this chesed is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger, and, and in Hebrew it's choicer men, uh, whether rich or poor. In other words, you could have gone with anybody, but you've come after me. You've proposed to me. You've, you've sought me out in the middle of the night and you've basically said, just like you hitched your wagon to Naomi on the way home from Moab, now you're wanting to hitch your wagon to me. And, and he is blown away by this. What we get from this is Boaz is likely older. Uh, he is likely not the number one guy in the area. He's, he would not be on the bachelor handing out roses. Uh, he's a man of good character, but he's not who all the women are clamoring after. Is, is the sense, at least from his words, what we get. That there are younger and better options than him out there. But we know that there aren't. Because we know his character. We've seen how he's protected Ruth and Naomi. We've seen how generous he's been. We've seen all those characteristics that, that, that negate his uh, advanced age or his lack of uh, whatever pizzazz the other guys have in Bethlehem. And so he doesn't see himself as anything special. And that's, again, part of the, the irony. It's like in the Song of Songs when the woman says, you know, oh, I'm just a, a lily of the valley. And, and that's not a good phrase. That's like, the valley's full of lilies. I'm just another. I'm just a, you know, there's a bunch of flowers out there. I'm just one. I'm nothing special. That's what the woman says in the song. And the man shoots back and he says, no, a lily among thorns is what you are. In other words, compared to everybody else out there, they're thorns compared to you. And he sees her as like this immaculate, you know, it's just in his eyes, she's amazing. In her eyes, she's like, I'm nothing special. My skin's worn out from the sun. I'm dark. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the best looking. I'm this and that. And he speaks and builds her up. Well, it's kind of like what Boaz, you know, when Ruth asks him to marry her, he's kind of like, I'm nothing special. Like, this is amazing. You've, you're asking me? And that's the irony, is he's this man of virtue. He's a man of high standing. Next chapter, we'll see how high standing he is. He's like a Kennedy, basically, in this part of the world. Like, he's grown good stock, enough so that he can make uh, things happen in the town just with his words. So we see that. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see himself as anything special. And again, that's part of the delicious irony of this story, is by this time in the eyes of us and in the eyes of Naomi and Ruth, He's, he's everything they've wanted. 
But in his eyes, he's like, What's the, I'm nothing special. So it's really cool. You've got to love Boaz. He just continues to impress the more the story goes. One of the few genuinely and thoroughly good characters in the Bible aside from Jesus. There are very few. There are very few heroes that aren't flawed in Scripture. But Boaz is up there among them. So he says, I will do for you all that you ask. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. He ascribes to her the same title that the narrator ascribed to him. An Isha Chayil, a woman of strength, a woman of character, a woman of virtue, a woman of power. Um, that's what Chayil means. It's, it's like strength, power, authority, uh, nobility. Context determines what it means. So in this case, he's praising her with the same praise that the narrator had described him when we first met him in the previous chapter. I know you're a woman of noble character. But now, his own honesty is going to get throw a kink in the plan, possibly. Because he says, although it's true, I am a near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. In other words, he says, yes, I am next in line to marry you, to take you in. And remember, taking her in means assuming control of the land that belonged to her dead husband and holding that land in order until whatever son is born comes of age, and then that son gets the land and continues the name of Elimelech. So Boaz stepping in to marry her is not creating a dynasty for Boaz. It's preserving the dynasty of Elimelech and Machon that have died. That's the kindness that he's showing. That's the chesed, that devotion. So that's where there's risk involved. But he says, but I am a kinsman redeemer, but I'm not the kinsman redeemer. There's somebody closer than me. In other words, uh, Elimelech and Machon had a closer relative than Boaz's family. And so that's what he lets her know at first. So verse 13, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he will not redeem, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So he tells her, I want to do this. I want to redeem you, your land, everything. I want to take, I, yes, I'm all in, but there's somebody who has technically more right to you, your, this whole dynasty property thing than I do. I have to give him a chance first. But he says, but if he's not going to do it, I'll do it. So at this point, Ruth realizes whether she knows this other guy. She, you know, we don't know who this other guy is. At this point, her safety is guaranteed. That, that she and, her, and that, that the there's someone is going to catch them. Someone is going to come and provide. And it's either going to be this person we don't know, who we aren't crazy about that idea. Why? Because we know Boaz already. And so we want it, and the narrator is making it so that we're rooting for Boaz. And we're like, wait, no, no, no. What do you mean there's another guy? No, forget the other guy. She's right here. You're right here. Just take her under your garment and it's settled. And then go tell the townspeople the next day, hey, we're married. That's all you have to do. Because she doesn't have a father that you have to pay a bride price to. She doesn't have a family that you have to initiate a wedding ceremony with. You, right now, it can be done. Boaz's own integrity doesn't let him do it. And so again, we see this admirable quality in Boaz that, that God wants his people to emulate. Even when it puts their personal interests at risk, commitment to the truth is still important. And that's just, we continue to be amazed by Boaz's character. So he says, stay here till morning. Uh, verse 14, so she lay at his footing, that near him, until morning. 
but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Why? Is he embarrassed? No, for her. Women came to the threshing floor all the time. Wasn't a big deal. Prostitutes would come to threshing floors. Business was good. Threshing floors, think about truck stops today. If you don't know, truck stops, a lot goes on at truck stops that's sketchy. Why? Because people have been on the road, they've been lonely, they're tired, they're worn out. Knock on the door, hey there, buddy. Well, come on in. Like, that's the kind of stuff that happens in places. That's what would happen at the threshing floors. You've been working all day, you've been threshing, you've been winnowing, you've been sifting, you, you, it's been a long day. So for women who are desperate, who are trying to make ends meet, who are doing whatever they can, women would go to threshing floors. And in pagan Canaanite culture, where threshing and harvest, all of it centered around the cult of the Canaanite gods, you better believe sex was part of that deal. And that was seen as an act of worship, even. That's why the Canaanite gods were always such a temptation to Israel. That is church outreach, <laughs> if you ever think about it. You want to get people to come worship at your church, send them prostitutes. That's going to get the guys in attention at least. That's what the pagan Canaanite culture was all built around. So Boaz saying, hey, don't let anybody know one was at the threshing floor. It's not necessarily for his reputation because guess what? There's always been a double standard. Guys don't take as big a hit for promiscuity as women do. And it was the same in the ancient world. It goes all the way back to their ancestor Judah and Tamar back in, in Genesis, who's going to be mentioned in the next chapter, by the way. If you don't remember that story, check the podcast for that chapter in Genesis or go read it yourself. Uh, 30, I can't remember exactly. Uh, but look up the story of Judah and Tamar and read that. And you'll see the double standard when it comes to men, women, prostitutes in the ancient world. So Boaz is protecting her more than protecting him, protecting her reputation because he knows she is a woman of, she's a Ishechael, a woman of strength, a woman of virtue, a woman of nobility. And so he's like, keep your reputation. Get out of here before anybody knows it's you. I'll take care of this. I've got you. I got you, boo. So, verse 15. He also said, before she leaves, he said, bring me your shawl you're wearing and hold it out. She did so. He poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. So before he leaves, once again... He gives her provisions. We're going to find out why in just a minute. Six measures of barley. Could have been a handful. Could have been a scoopful. It could have been a little bowl. The text isn't specific. But it's enough for her to gather it in her shawl, throw it on her back, and go back to Naomi. So he gives her, again, generous provisions on the way. Verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, and this is where translations miss because it's an idiom, the NIV says, uh, how did it go, my daughter? Literally in Hebrew, what Naomi asks is, who are you, my daughter? That's literally what she asks in Hebrew. And different translations render that different ways because they're like, well, she knows who she is. She called her her daughter. She knows it's Ruth. She, why does she ask, who are you? They miss sometimes, or it's hard to bring it out in English. It, this is an idiom. This is a figure of speech. What she's not, basically, what she's asking is, whose are you? my daughter. In other words, how did it go? Are you Miss Boaz now? Or are you still Ruth the Moabitess? So when she's asking, who are you, my daughter? She is asking, how did it go? Which is why translations translate it that way, because that's what it means. But it's interesting how she asks it. It's almost like saying, like, hey, show me the ring. You know, show me that wedding ring finger. Show, you know, what's your new maiden name? Or what's your maiden name? What's your new name? That kind of thing. She's asking about the marriage. 
And so we see that, that from Naomi's perspective, this, this could have happened that night. All he had to do was take her under his wing, and that's it. They're married. She belongs to him. And so when she asks, so Ruth says, uh, verse 16, then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, now we find out what he said as he gave it to her, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty or empty-handed. Don't go back to your mother-in-law in emptiness. Boaz and Naomi are relatives. Boaz is looking out. He's not just thinking. Again, this whole thing is greater than just Boaz being enamored by Ruth. We don't even, the, the narrator never comments on Ruth's appeal or beauty or him being in love. None of that. That's all read into the story. Time and time again, Boaz, what we see his primary concern is care for his kinsmen, care for Naomi. And that means care for Ruth, who he happens to think is amazing. We do know that he thinks she's amazing. He calls her a woman of character, a woman of nobility. So he's all in on this, but it's his, his interest is bigger than just, ooh, this lady likes me. I'm going to get me a woman. It's bigger than that. It's more than that. And so when he sends her back, he doesn't send her back empty. The reason that's important, in, in chapter 1, what was Ruth's compl or Naomi's complaint when she got back to Bethlehem? I've gone away full, I've come back empty. Lost my husband, I lost both sons, don't have anything. I've gone away full, I've come back empty. So don't call me Naomi, pleasant, call me Mara, bitter, because God's taken everything from me. And this is the second time now she's seen the chesed of God in basic, simple provisions for her continuing life. First time was in chapter 2 when Ruth came back from the threshing floor with the ephah of barley. And we saw an ephah is a ton. It's like 20-something, two liters worth of grain. So that's when Naomi was like, God has not forgotten me. And then now once again, we see her joy, that continuing. God continues to remember her. God continues to remember the widow. That's a dominant theme in Scripture. Remembering the widow. Caring for the widow. We see that's the nature of God. That's the character of God. That's who He is. And nowhere is that more illustrated than in Ruth. But later, for instance, when the prophets are going to condemn Israel, when they're going to warn Israel, when they're going to just vehemently rail against the evils in Israel, one of the primary things that they're going to rail against is in Israel the people who, as a whole, have neglected the widow and the orphan. They have cheated the widow, taken advantage of the orphan. That's always the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. That's the heart of God more than anything else. That's the heart of God is how we care, how we act, how we extend chesed to the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. That's a barometer of a society's faithfulness. Doesn't matter that your money says in God we trust. Doesn't matter that you say the prayers in public school. Doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. If you're neglecting the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan, then God says, I hate your assembly. I hate your songs. Your noise to my ears. Your sacrifices are nothing to me. This is paraphrasing Amos. Is God's heart for his people when they neglect the widow, the poor, the orphan, the immigrant. And so we get Ruth as like a, an object lesson. Ruth is like a Sunday school lesson. You know like when the pastor, if you go to churches where there's children's time, 
where the pastor will come down from the pulpit and sit down and say, all right, all the kids come up. And then the kids will come up and they'll sit around and the pastor will usually do some little illustration to teach the kids something. Uh, <clears throat> and so that's, Ruth is kind of like that. God's saying, hey, everybody, after this dark period of the judges, gather around. This is what chesed looks like. This is what covenant faithfulness looks like. This is what my care for people looks like. And so we get Ruth as our object lesson. So Naomi, she sees the provision once again, and she knows. She, she says, sit, my daughter. And Ivy says, wait, but she literally says, sit, or sit tight is a better way of putting it in English. Sit tight, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. In other words, she knows, we don't know exactly how she knows, but she knows that this is going to be taken care of today. Um, <clears throat> and then chapter 4, verse 1, we'll end with this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. So Boaz goes to the city gate of Bethlehem. Now, city gate, whenever you hear the word gate in a, in a cultural context in the Old Testament, in your mind, think city hall. Because that's what the city gate was. It was city hall. It was where the business happened. In order for something to happen, to have legally binding status, it had to happen at the city gate. In fact, city gates have been excavated. There's one at Gezer, which is like, has these little rooms with plastered benches in the rooms, which is where the elders would sit and have meetings that would be official business. City gates were city hall. So Boaz doesn't just go back and just plop down and anywhere. He goes right, he goes to the marriage license certificate office basically he goes to where this is going to happen and as he goes the narrator once again just as Ruth happened to be gleaning in the field that belonged to Boaz now when Boaz goes to the city gate who happens to come along but the kinsman redeemer that he had just said was closer the one who actually technically has rights to redeem uh, Elimelech's land and his widow or in this case his daughter his son's widow um, that's who just happens to come along and it's really fascinating because it says, come over here, my friend. In Hebrew, that does not say my friend. That says poloni almoni. And it's a word that has no meaning. Poloni almoni. It's like helter-skelter, higgledy-piggledy, hodgepodge. It's a rhyme that means nothing. And the, the, the two words together, literally in English, the best way to translate it is so-and-so. Or what's-his-name. It's, a unna it's when, you want to, when you want to denote someone but not use their name. You say, hey, so-and-so, come here. That's what the narrator does with this. Why? Why doesn't he name the guy? Everybody else in this story has been named. Why isn't this Aloni Pomoni, uh, Pomoni Aloni named? Why doesn't he get it? Well, we're going to see in the next section when afterwards why he doesn't get a name. He could have had a name. He could have had a name that would be remembered for all time. But he doesn't. Instead, he's Mr. So-and-so for all the ages. And we'll see why. But we're out of time. So next week, you're going to take a three-week trip with Minister Clarence here through Acts. And then after that, I'm going to come back and be nice and jet-lagged and ready to go. Uh, and we're going to finish out the Book of Ruth. So everybody have a great week. Get some seconds if you want them. <laughs>